Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri. Today we're talking about the psychology of money with psychotherapist Chris Mills. Money is often at the root of many problems I see, but it may not be obvious and it can hide behind other issues. I think this is in part because people find it really hard talking about money or admitting they have a problem with it. In this episode, we look at what money can mean to ourselves and what it can stand in for in our relationships. A recurring theme in problems I get at The Guardian is families arguing over money when someone's died. Of course, it's about the money, but it's also about money being the only thing left to argue over because the love isn't there anymore and maybe it never really was. So in these cases, money becomes a stand-in for love. We'll see how often money can be a substitute for other things too. However difficult it is, it's really important to talk about money if you're planning on buying property with someone, getting married or moving in with someone, be their romantic partner or friend, and Chris and I discuss how to do this. I also think it's really important to talk about money in the family and teach children how to not only handle money, but trust them with age-appropriate amounts. I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you'd like to listen to this podcast ad-free and before it goes on general release, please consider becoming a patron from just £3 a month or you can give a one-off donation via ACAST supporter. Both links will be in the episode description. Chris, hello and welcome to Series 6 and the third podcast that we are doing together. Hi, good to be back. We're going to be talking about money today. And when I first started working with you several years ago, I remember our first conversation was that you worked with a lot of divorcing or separating couples. And I wondered how often money came up as a reason for people splitting up. Such an interesting question, because I don't think it ever does. I don't think it ever comes up as the reason. Really? Gosh, I'm surprised. It might be within the range of reasons, but it's hardly ever top of the list. Mm. Uh, And it's such an interesting question because in answering it, I then discover that, you know, I then have to sort of drill down and think who said that money was the greatest part of the problem that caused the marriage to end. And the thing is with divorces, which as you say, I've done a lot of work with, it's a bit like looking down the opposite end of the telescope because money comes into play big time in divorces. It's Mm. a huge issue 
when people are separating. I mean, not for everybody, but for an awful lot of people, it's a really, really big number because of the nature of marriage. And I've committed to share all my worldly goods with you, which a lot of people don't realise. They don't realise that is, in fact, the promise they've made, which is why divorces can sometimes be very contentious around money. But truthfully, to answer your question, I don't remember a time when any couple have come to me saying we're separating because of money. It's likely to be intertwined with other things. For example, maybe meanness or absence or spending too much time working rather than being at Mm. home with the plan. But never, I don't think, did anybody ever say to me, money is the problem. That's interesting because I think growing up when I used to read like Woman's Own and quite often I used to read that the reasons for splitting up were about sex and money so I think maybe that's where I've got that idea from but I think you're right it's not obvious it's not named but it might be an undercurrent. Yes I think that's it I think that's really it because when you and I first talked about doing this podcast and I was thinking about money I realised how difficult it is to talk just about money. In other words, talk about money without talking about the politics of money or or how money is divided in different societies or whether it's fair or whether it's unfair. In other words, getting into sort of political discussions about it. But money itself is so everywhere. It infiltrates so much every part of our lives and the way we think and the way we operate that I think to talk just about money is a bit like trying to talk just about oxygen. You know, it's just everywhere around us and it's in every way that we think about our lives, ourselves and other people and how we operate in the world. So maybe that's the reason why nobody has ever come to me and said, we're getting a divorce because of money. But that may not necessarily mean it's not. It's not deeply embedded in there somewhere. Well, I suppose also it depends what money means to us. I mean, talking about divorce and money, it reminded me of a lot of the letters I get about wills where there isn't anything else that there may have been previously to fight about. There's no more love to go around. They may surprise themselves with how much suddenly what they get matters. And I've often thought it stands in for something else. And with divorce as well, I mean, obviously, money is important if you want to form a new life, especially if you have children. But it's also, I think, about control. How much do you think money has to do with power and control, given what we've just said? Uh, Everything. Everything, really. I mean, if people are trying to grab control and power, of course, money is a great way of doing it. And some people are extremely good at that. You know, they use money as a control tool as a power symbol as a power tool through their lives you know there are some people who from a very early age will suddenly spot money and they can see what it means or they can see what it can mean in terms of power and influence you know that people in our society who have a lot of money are the ones who tend to have the power and the influence and they will really go for it but again we could sit here all day really talking about people's different relationships with money i think with money, I would take a punt on this, that all of us as individuals are in a minority of one in terms of how we view money, because I think all of us as individuals project so much onto the notion of money. And that's why I think that if you had a young couple who were getting together and one of them said to the other, let's talk about money, 
it would be baffling to begin with, because I think our point of entry to talking about money, all of us as individuals, is probably different. It's very subjective, isn't it, I think? Really subjective. Mm. I think money seems to stand in for something else, in the way that sometimes certain emotions are the ones that immediately bubble up. Anger is one of them often used as a shield for softer feelings like vulnerability or fear. Money does seem to become a sort of another language maybe for something else. We've talked about the sort of the power and the control, but I think it's a quite an interesting question to ask ourselves what money really means to us because, I mean, I think if people are honest, it's fewer the people who say that money just doesn't matter to them because of what it facilitates. But... It's also about value, isn't it? It's the sort of the value you place on money. Is that, I mean, see, for me, it's always been very important to earn my own money. Taking me as an example, why might it be so important for me to earn my own money? What might that say about me? It sounds like you maybe don't want to be dependent on mm. other people. Yeah. That's that you on. want to, to feel that you have the capacity to put a kind of safe envelope around yourself and look after yourself because... You know, it might be nice to be looked after by other people, but maybe you don't really trust that they can do that. When you say that, that example about you, it links me back to the difference between a couple when they're getting married or when they're getting together, and maybe when they're getting divorced, if they reach that unfortunate point. Because it's like the gloves are off at the point where a couple is splitting up. When people are getting together, I think there's still, for an awful lot of us, there's this sort of huge kind of romantic, I was going to say cloud, it's probably the wrong word for it because it sounds negative, but you know, there's this kind of lovely romantic bubble that we're in, which makes us feel very, very safe as if we found the person who's going to make us whole, who's going to save us from ourselves. And I think money gets kind of caught up in that. Together we can do anything. Together we can change the world. And that's why probably a lot of young couples, when they first get together, don't talk about money. It's so boring. You know, it's just kind of, why would we talk about that? Let's just go and spend it and have fun. Whereas when a marriage ends, suddenly massive insecurity where do we both go from here? Here we are suddenly with our emotional pants down and we're feeling terrified of the future. Who's going to get the money? Who's going to get the house? How are we going to share it? Why should it be shared? Because you cheated on me. And suddenly money is everywhere. Mm. Money is absolutely the symbol of dependence or independence or power or generosity or meanness or cruelty or all of those things or survival basically how the hell am I going to survive so the temperature changes so much in a sense then the point about what we you me all of us project onto the idea of money suddenly becomes really sharp and really changed so what's changed between that first point when we're in this romantic bubble and we don't really want to talk about money because it's boring and practical and might seem a bit grasping to the end of this relationship where suddenly it becomes about everything and you use the word survival, very primal. What's changed in that period of time? Trust. Trust. Trust is gone. Right. So money that... is almost like a substitute. In fact, money, the more I think about it, can be a substitute for lots of things, can't it? It can be a substitute for love, can be a substitute for trust, as we've just said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because money, depending on your circumstances, money can seem more reliable than love. Mm. And in other circumstances, love can seem way more reliable than money. So it's a shapeshifter. I think it changes depending on who we are and what the circumstances are that 
we're in. But I think also, and this I think would be true if we think about couples who are getting together, young couples getting together, well, actually even older couples, not really to do with age, but I think how we view money as individuals is hugely influenced by our family background, by where we come from. Mm-hmm. Whether we're agreeing with the family background that we come from or whether we're rebelling against it, somehow we're sort of still defined by it in that way. And so our way into thinking about money is very heavily influenced by that. But we may think we're being objective, but of course we're not. As you said a few minutes ago, we're being very subjective. But we're, we're living by the beliefs that we have about money. And those are very, very shaky. If somebody said to me, Chris, I think you're really good with money, I'd go, really? Do you? Why? And if somebody said to me, Chris, I think you're really bad with money, I'd say, really? Do you? Why? Hey, I've got no idea whether I'm good with money or not, really. I haven't a clue. I can make up my own thoughts about it, but other people might well take a very, very different view. And I couldn't, I couldn't dispute with them, really. I wouldn't have any legs to stand on. Mm, that's interesting, because when you say those two comments to me... If someone said to me, are, are you good with money? I'd feel really proud. And if someone said you're bad with money, immediate emotion is panic. But how do they know? Just the thought of it, the idea <laughs> yes. of it. I mean, my dad, when I was quite young, said something that pleased me greatly. And I can still remember the feeling of where we were and the feeling elicited in me, which is he said, you'll never be short of money because you're not afraid to make money. Because I started work at the age of seven in the family business and he really encouraged that. And I just... I was just so proud of that comment that he'd noticed, but also I think there was something so freeing. Because I come from an immigrant background, we had no backup in this country. Although my parents worked really, really hard, we lived a comfortable life, but I was aware there was no buffer. I think it's very powerful when we have an experience, even if it's not necessarily our own direct experience, but a very close family experience of seeing how easy it is and how quick it is to go from wealth to poverty. Yeah, we talked about money very openly and I've never been scared of talking about money and my parents shared everything. I was very comfortable, but I do know people who never talk about money and they also, to use your phrase, aren't very good with money, partly because money was something that was not spoke about and so they never really learnt about it, but it's just a slightly taboo subject, almost like death. Like some families never talk about death because they think it's just going to go away. In your experience, sort of in your consulting room, how has not talking about something, how might that impact on somebody? Do you ever get a couple where they just don't talk about money and that's become a problem? Yeah, usually a couple like that would be a couple who don't talk about all sorts of things because they're a problem. It's so interesting hearing what you're saying. That is the idea of being in a family where everybody talks very openly about money is very unfamiliar to me. Really? So Yeah, yeah. And what I would imagine when you're talking about your family of origin talking very openly, I don't know whether I'm right, but what I assume from that is that money wasn't scary. It was something that you could talk about in the way that you could talk about the weather or what you're going to have for dinner. Because I think my experience as a therapist is that people shy away from topics which are scary. And I think for a lot of people, money, even for wealthy people, I think money can be one of them, a really, really scary thing to talk about. So with couples who I've worked with who find it difficult to talk about money, they probably find it difficult to talk about all kinds of things. And they welcome a bit of help 
to do that. They welcome the therapist's intervention that can make them feel safe to just go there and be able to express their fears or their feelings or their hopes about it. That's a great place to be where you can talk openly about money without fear of revealing shame or something. I'm not Mm. earning enough or I'm not saving enough or I'm being too stingy or I'm being too frivolous or whatever it is. I think those kind of moral things get attached to talking about money all the time. Now, maybe that's just me partly projecting myself onto it because I feel some of those things myself. But I think in my consulting room, I've seen a lot of that. I've seen people with a lot of money not having the slightest idea how to talk about it. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I think we all define ourselves in different ways. You know, some people are defined through their relationships, some people through work, some people through their earning power. I see quite a lot on social media this kind of idea that women want men who are high earners. That's something I see sort of quite a lot that's kind of repeated. And sometimes when I talk to my male friends, they say she's just after his money. That's quite a sort of familiar phrase. I guess it's to do with power, being looked after. There's been women in history who have gone for very powerful rich men. And as a child, I used to read and people say, oh, they're gold diggers. I look at that slightly differently now because I think, especially in that time where women perhaps, you know, couldn't earn, I think it meant being looked after and feeling safe. We live in such an interesting period of history too, with the massive sort of transition and the cultural shift that feminism has brought us, which we're really, I think, still very much in the middle of. 
in a hundred years' time, if somebody was listening to us talking now, they'd probably think, oh, wow, God, yeah, so, you know, so simple, so naive. But I think the thing is, in the past, in the not very dim and distant past, women had to look for a rich man, or at least a man who was a decent earner, because they couldn't do it for themselves. I mean, if a woman was going to have a half-decent life, of course she was going to be looking for a man who maybe metaphorically was looking after her, but who was actually bringing some money in. So there was going to be some security maybe to have a home and have some kids and be able to raise them successfully. So I think the shadow of that is very, very, very long. And I also know women, very smart women, who still think it's a good smart thing to do with a man who's earning lots of dosh, whether they also are earning lots of dosh themselves or not. I think it's natural and normal for all of us to want to find security in whatever form we can. I'm not inclined to sneer at any of us for doing that because, you know, life is precarious. And I think it's natural that we look out for what is a safe option. I've certainly seen some interesting things again in my consulting room where you sometimes get women who are very independent. They're independent thinkers. They're very much making their own way in the world. They're earning their own money. But they're also quite attached to the idea of being with a man who also is earning good money, but who also is doing that thing that you were talking about, which is taking care. And I think one of the dilemmas that I quite often see with couples these days is that a man, from a woman's point of view maybe, a man who is earning a lot of money isn't enough. She's quite happy with the money he's earning, but what she also wants is him to be emotionally intelligent, emotionally lucid and available. And I think sometimes in the past, in that kind of standoff that's existed between the genders, you've got very infantilised women who are being looked after by very wealthy, high-earning, high-inheriting men. And those men think that's enough. They don't want to be called on to to provide anything else, emotional comfort or friendship or those kind of things. So I think in different ways, feminism has made both men and women feel demanded of in different ways. And I think we're just in the soup at the moment of all of that. I think it's an interesting place to be. Someone could be a high earner and not be very generous with either their money or their time or their care. It's certainly not a guarantee. And equally, you could be a very caring, generous person and not have a lot of money. I mean, we've spoken in the past about how generosity has very little to do with money, and often generosity is mistaken for earning potential. You know, I know when I was still at school, because I had a job from the age of seven, I always had cash, and I was very generous, and people took advantage of that. And I never forgot that. I think you put your, your finger on something very interesting there because I remember you telling me this before about how you wanted to treat your friends and so on. And I suppose that's one of the learnings that a lot of us do, isn't it? That actually, if we have a tendency to be generous and we want to pay to give people a good time, we're maybe not anticipating that they'll, some of them at least, will think, oh, this is quite good. This is a good person to hang out with. I don't have to put my hand in my pocket. It's all going to be paid for. And so those are part of the lessons that we learn. And maybe in a way we learn to be a little bit more careful around some of the boundaries. I kind of feel the same as you, really. If I've got money, I really like to spend it on having a good time with other people. But I'm much more wary now that that might disable them if they just think, oh, well, I'll go and touch him for a bit of cash and I don't really need to think about how I'm going to raise it for myself. I have to be really careful not to fall into the trap of 
infantilizing, if that's not too strong a word, people who who won't do it for themselves just because they think I'll do it for them. I mean, I luckily that's not really a problem now. I'm, you know, my friends and I are very we're generous with each other. But I think when I was younger, absolutely a learning curve. I did want to treat certain friends, but with a couple of friends, it was less that. It was just that awkward thing when nobody's putting their hand in their pocket. I think I just didn't like the awkwardness and that sort of got me out of it. But I felt very used. And Mm. after a couple of times, because, you know, I would question thinking, is it me? Am I being mean? And I did put a stop to it. But it was a real learning moment. We're almost not talking about money in any objective sense. We're talking about kindness. Mm. We're talking about how kindness, there's all sorts of ways of being kind and money is one of them. I was thinking about these two extremes the other day because I think they illustrate something about the lack of objectivity that we all have around money. And the two extremes are, I've encountered quite a lot working on divorce cases People who've got more money than I certainly could even dream of. You know, so many zeros at the end of the number that you just you could hardly work out what it is. And you get people occasionally, maybe not that often, but occasionally you get people in court who have got a settlement of, let's say, £80 million. And for some reason, £5 million of that is being quibbled over. And so the potential is they're going to finish up with only 75 million instead of 80 million. And they are frantic. They're absolutely frantic because they don't think they're going to be able to survive on 5 million less. Mm. At the other end, this happened to somebody that I knew a while back. He was walking through the streets and a, a beggar approached him and he gave the beggar a 20 pound note and continued walking and the beggar chased him down the street and said no no no, you made a mistake sorry you've made a mistake you gave me 20 quid Mm. and this guy said yeah 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 you look a bit short that's okay and this beggar was then kind of dancing you know 20 pounds somebody's giving me 20 pounds so do you know what I mean it's not about the it's not about the amount is it it's about the gesture it's about the human gesture well, I suppose also what it means it. to you. I'm guessing for some people, 75 million is not enough if <laughs> they have that kind Absolutely. of lifestyle. I think it's all kind of relative, you know. I can't even begin to imagine what I would do with that amount of money. I can imagine what I'd do with some of it, but it's so vast, isn't it, that you're kind of a bit sort of lost. But that's the point of my argument, really, that actually what then is the value of money itself? It has no value, does it? Does it's it? about the human gestures mm. that that surround it and what we do with it really I think yeah and I remember I had a reader once and she was saying that she couldn't decide whether to marry this person and she it became apparent as she wrote the letter that money was really important and what I said to her is I wouldn't advise marrying just for money (laughs) but if money is really important to you then you need to really know who you are and if that's what matters to you I don't know if that was good advice or bad advice, but it seemed to me that like anything else, you know, if it's really important that you marry someone that can cook or is good at DIY or likes to travel, I think you need to know who you are and what that means as long as that is the the only thing because that's a little short-sighted. But yeah, I mean, but I think one of the things that keeps coming back is what money is a facilitator, what it stands in for. Really, it's just a token, isn't it? Literally, it's just a token for something else. It really is. I think the cultural thing, though, is important. Again, something that I've encountered in working with couples. These are not necessarily couples who are splitting up. But sometimes in later life, I've been working with couples who get together where one of them 
is really very wealthy and the other one hasn't got much at all and so their lifestyles uh, of course often people who are in those different positions don't even meet but sometimes they do and they hit it off and they get on really well and I've been in situations where the for example the one who hasn't got very much money every time they go out for dinner he or she insists that they pay their way even though they really can't afford to Mm. and the other one who's got loads of money is kind of thinking oh for god's sake you know (laughs) It's, yeah, let's just have a nice time and I'll pay. It it's, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. goes back a little bit, I think, maybe to what you were saying about wanting to be independent and what not wanting to sort of be overwhelmed by, by somebody else's very, very different history with money. And I think those relationships can be difficult simply because one or other or probably both of the people in the couple, however attracted they might be to each other, there is this huge historical difference between them in how they view money and quite possibly how they view their own value in relation to money. That, I think, can be a very, very hard one to get through. Possibly people who are young and who get together in their 20s or whatever, maybe they can get through that because they're still growing, they're still learning, they're still developing their own kind of internal culture. But I think for older people who get together, that can be problematic if the income is wildly different between Mm. the two. I wanted to ask you some practical questions, really, given your experience as a man of the world, a therapist, and (laughs) (laughs) and has a lot of experience with couples and people just generally having difficult conversations. If a couple were getting together, we've established that often it's not thought about, not talked about, it's not a sexy subject, but if they were going to live together as opposed to just dating, I think things shift what might you say to them to think about in terms of building a sort of healthy relationship? Should they talk about money? If they've got to the point of moving in together, they're already going to have talked a bit about money because they're going to have had to look at what the rent is and where the money's coming from. And in, unless they're incredibly wealthy and none of this matters, let's assume it's average couple who have to watch the pennies to an extent, They'll have had to watch the pennies together at the point where they're moving in. So they'll already have a bit of an experience of what it's like to deal with money with each other. It's always rather sad talking about this because stage one of a relationship where people are just goofy about each other and everything's wonderful is such a nice place to be. And stage two, where the cracks or the potential cracks begin to show, is less sexy. And that's really the point at which I think it's very good for couples to notice anything that they think is a bit weird or that makes them feel a bit uncomfortable or that makes them feel somehow that a question has been left unresolved Mm. about all sorts of things, including, very much including money. In other words, if you've got a young couple and one of them suddenly realises that he or she has no idea how much money the other one's got because the other one never talks about it, or somehow the bank accounts are very hidden, or there's never any question of, oh, just, yeah, take my card if you can't find yours, it's fine, and we'll deal with it later. If there's an absence of openness, then I would, I think that's worth challenging in a kind sort of way, even if it's just, you know, I realise I don't know much about money and what you think about it and how much you've got and are we sharing it or are we not sharing it can we talk about that I think really it's never too early 
to open up a conversation of that sort at the point where a relationship is looking good, where it's looking like it's really taking off and it's going to begin to root itself in a practical way. I think it's very important then to just ask questions and notice what makes you feel uncomfortable. Because again, young couples tend not always to be terribly good at this, I think. They they just want the dream to last. Mm. And so they tend to be very tolerant of things that are a bit odd. And they tend to think, oh, it'll pass, or it'll blow over, or it's just this once or whatever. I think being a therapist has taught me over the years to recommend to people to pick up on everything, actually, every little thing that they don't quite understand or that doesn't quite make sense to them. Or, do you know what I mean? And I think money can send out messages of that sort fairly early on. I totally agree. But how do you get someone to talk about money if they don't want to and they're really secretive? Well, you you then know that they're really secretive and you've got information that you might need in order to know how far or how fast to take this relationship. Mm. Because if you're with somebody and you're planning to spend your life with them, but they're not willing to talk about this, what will be central aspect of it, uh, then you've got a problem or you've discovered that they've got a problem, which is going to become your problem if it can't be dealt with. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. Following on from someone moving in together, maybe not married. I mean, it seems the only way people can afford to buy anywhere together now is if they get a mortgage with a partner or even sometimes people do it like with friends. Obviously, Chris, you're not a financial advisor, but as a therapist and someone, again, who's seen things go wrong between people what might you advise them to do if they're going to buy a place together and get a mortgage well (laughs) the first thing that comes into my head is in fact something that my financial advisor something that I think he would say which I think is enormously wise is whatever kind of big move you're going to make that involves for example maybe sharing a mortgage with somebody this is not at all sexy but it's so practical and sensible is so how does it end how does this end? What's the end? In other words, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't turn out to be what you think it's going to be or what you hope for, how do you end it? And if you don't know how you would end it, if it needs to end, then don't do it. But if you do know and you can agree how it ends, if it doesn't work out, and you can put that in writing in some form, if you can make that some sort of legal contract, then you've protected yourself. And I think what's so wise about that is it allows for the hope and the excitement. Wow, this is a great idea. Let's do this because this means we can get a house, whatever it is. But it also forces you to be grown up about it and admit that although it might work and wouldn't it be fantastic if it does, it might not. And then what happens? What's your get out? I think that's really wise advice. I would steal that from my financial advisor. I think that is really good advice. And, you know, be wary of people that say things like, oh, we'll just talk it out or we'll work something out because I have seen things go wrong where you just really didn't think that they would. My sort of thing is always prepare for the worst case scenario. And if you need it, it's there. And if you don't, hooray. But actually, it's worth thinking about. You know, and boring, boring, boring. Put it all in writing. Yeah. Because people do not remember the same things. You know, if you just do it, in, uh, we can agree, it's fine, it's fine, if it doesn't work, we'll do this, that, and that. People don't remember what they've said. 
Mm. It's really important to get the fine detail down on paper. And although it's a boring thing to do, it's a great relief to have it. Chris, given that earlier we were talking about how we might be subliminally influenced by how money was talked about growing up, what about if you were brought up to sort of fear money? How What impact might that have on you when you're an adult? I think a lot of people have been brought up to fear money. I think in some ways I was from my father's side of the family, not so much from my mother's. My mother's side had far more money than my father's did. So I'm speaking for myself, but I think I'm also maybe speaking for quite a lot of other people. I think what it does to you is it creates in your family culture, how could I put it, maybe a kind of money PTSD that actually money is in charge of us. Mm. We are not in charge of money. And thinking about how different it was in your family of origin, it sounds like, no, we're all talking about money. We're doing what we want to do with it. It's not doing us. We're doing it. And I think it can spread a very, very long arm, that initial fear about money, the idea that money is some kind of sadistic god that's looking down on us and it's going to deprive us at any moment if we're not super careful and super well behaved. And I think the disadvantage of that, and I think to an extent I've I'm very happy that I've turned this around, is that too much anxiety about money, too much caution about money blocks creativity. And actually making money requires creativity. It requires the ability to take risks that don't make you feel as if you're automatically shooting yourself in the foot by taking that risk. It can be a real disabler growing up with the feeling that money is essentially the enemy. It's got its eye on me. And it's going to knock me off my perch as soon as it gets an opportunity. What I think is very interesting there is that really, really successful business people, I wouldn't count myself among those, but really, really successful business people, if you look at their track record, nearly all of them have gone bust several times and rebuilt themselves. They've totally got through the fear or the idea that money is in charge of them. Mm. They play the game they play the game and sometimes they lose it but the fact that they lose it doesn't make them not think they're going to win next time which they very often do. I mean obviously we're talking in a time where people are really struggling to make ends meet and it must be very hard to be creative. I've certainly been in that situation at certain times of my life where things have been quite precarious and money does start to slightly obsess you because you can't take risks because you have to you're on this kind of cliff edge You just can't dare shake anything or change anything. But the difference there, I think, is you know you can't. You know, the pennies are very, very short. You know that you can't take risks. You know you're not in a position to do that. But it's not because you're terrified of money. It's because you just know that right now you haven't got enough. You haven't got that wiggle room. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You've got an evidence base for the fact that there's very little you can do with money at the moment. And of course, you're right. There are so many people who are struggling enormously. I wouldn't want anybody to think I'm somehow criticising them for not being creative. What I'm trying to refer to is only that sort of PTSD inheritance that's maybe run through a family for several generations of money is terrifying. We're paralysed in the face of it. And I think that's something different. Yeah, well, then it becomes a real master of you. And it it paralyses you, doesn't it? Despite being comfortable talking about money... When I was 18 and I was able to get my own credit cards, I went a little bit crazy and I got every credit card and store card that I could. And I used to have one of those concertina wallets and I used to love opening it and all my cards just falling out. And I got myself into debt. And I remember 
one of my friends, Joanna, she just asked me, like, how much do you owe? I said, but it's okay, because I've got that in savings. And she was like, well, that, none of that makes sense. You know, you're paying so much more in interest. And she marched me to the building society and made me take my money out and pay off all my cards, cut them all up except for one. I can't tell you what a useful lesson this was because my parents didn't have a credit card. I understood that you had to pay it off, at least in part, but it was so exciting having a piece of plastic and it seemed so posh. Now, Joanna did me the most massive favour and I have never since that day run up debts on my credit card because she just taught me something really simple but she was just like if you can't afford it you don't buy it this is just a piece of plastic it's not magic but what might people who I'm not talking about debts stay alive and pay bills but people who buy things way beyond their means what might that tell us about them they're not they're not wanting to face something and you, they're, yes they're just trying to spend their way out of difficult feelings of whatever kind of difficult feelings they are. People who are addicted to spending, people who are addicted to gambling, who go into a kind of weird fog of suddenly the numbers don't make sense anymore. It can become unreal in rather the way that you were describing your experience with the credit card. So I think, again, we're talking about two different things. I think your experience of getting into debt when you were young was really good, actually, because I think one of the really great ways of learning how to get out of debt is to be in debt and to, you know, in your case, you had a friend who could could really help you with that. And it probably meant that you didn't do it again after that. It was a really powerful lesson. I think people who constantly get into debt and who don't seem to learn anything from it have got probably some kind of psychological addiction problem. And the person who's in a relationship with that person is going to know all about it and how tricky and difficult it is in much the same way that they would if their partner was a heroin addict or an alcoholic living with somebody like that we're talking of you know, something that's a different extreme really i think that like so many of the things you mentioned like drugs and alcohol it can be a numbing thing can't it there's a yes. sort of certain euphoria when you're doing it, it takes you away from what you're thinking about i guess that's why it's called retail therapy yeah chris is there such a thing as a kind of financial therapist <laughs> Well, it's interesting you say that because I've got a financial advisor and he is a brilliant financial advisor because what fascinates him is what makes people tick. So he's mm. far more interested in the people that he's working with than with the numbers. So he spends a huge amount of time really finding out what they want, finding out what they're frightened of discovering what it is about money that they're terrified of talking about because they think they're going to reveal how idiotic they've been or what bad judgment they've shown or whatever. And he takes a huge amount of the pain out of it. And I think he's great because I can't, I can't recommend everybody to my financial advisor. <laughs> I think it's wonderful to have somebody that you can speak to in that kind of way about money. I think it's so stress relieving and worry relieving. What he says to us now, particularly to my wife, who can get quite anxious about money, he says to her, no, 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 look, hang on, you've accumulated it. It's time to start spending it now. It's time to start enjoying it. I totally agree. Chris, thank you so much. Thanks so much to Chris for this. I hope this has encouraged you to have some conversations with your family and friends about money. And remember, if you're too embarrassed to talk about money when things are going well between you, imagine how much harder it will be if things go wrong. 
If this episode has tempted you to get a financial advisor, then please make sure whoever you deal with is registered with the Financial Conduct Authority. I'll put the link to their website on the episode bio. The producer is Hester Kant, the music is by Toby Dunham, and our artwork is by Low Cole. If you'd like to read my column, it appears every Saturday in The Guardian Saturday magazine. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Annalisa. I started doing this podcast because it's an idea I really believe in. So much so that I decided to put my money where my mouth is and self-fund the project. I really want to keep releasing this podcast for free. So if you enjoy this episode, a way you can help is to visit our ACAST supporter page and give what you can. You'll find the link in the episode description. Thank you.